welcome to whoever's uh, watching on the live stream as well. Uh, please let us know that you're watching and what we can do to serve you. Uh, take a look at your uh, notices real quick, and let me just run through a couple of these real fast. First of all, new members classes at 6 o'clock tonight, not 6.30. We just started last week, so it's not too late to join if you want to. Uh, we just get together and talk about, um, we're going to talk about Christianity and uh, hang out with each other. Uh, free childcare too, if you um, have kids that you want to bring. Uh, midweek Lent worship service at 7 o'clock on Wednesday. Please plan on joining us for that as well. Uh, a couple announcements down. Seder Supper on April 10th. It's going to happen here at the church, and it's going to be led by Pastor uh, Kevin Parviz, who is the pastor of uh, Kai Shalom Congregation, which is an LCMS church, which ministers to uh, the Jewish community in University City. He's one of our partners. There's a sign-up sheet back there. It doesn't cost anything, but the, you do need to sign up before you come because there's only a certain amount of space that we have for that. Um, their church is joining us as well, and so it's not just unlimited. So I, I, I hate to be uh, a, a real stickler about this, but if you, if you, don't, if you don't sign up for the, um, for the Seder dinner, then you probably can't come because there's a certain amount of food they need and only a certain amount of space that we have. So please, the sign-up is right, uh, right out there in the back. Please uh, sign up if you want to participate in that. Okay, a couple more things, and then we got uh, some um, other announcements. Uh, first of all, we put out the guest books again. Uh, I know that's old-fashioned. We are working on a way to take attendance, uh, you know, electronically uh, with a QR code on the bulletin. But as for right now, if you could uh, take that guest book and fill your name out and then pass that down, uh, that would be great. Also, for the first time since uh, uh, spring 2020, uh, we're going to be going back to using the common cup again today during communion. And so when you come forward for communion, there's gonna be, you're going to be served the bread, of course, and then somebody's, uh, an elder is going to come by with the tray with the individual cups, and then another elder is going to have the common cup. If you, want to, if you want to use the common cup, just don't take one of the individual cups. If you take one of the individual cups, the common cup guy will pass you by. So uh, that's how that will work. Um, okay, I think that's all I have for announcements. Ruth Thompson is going to come and talk about some youth group stuff, and then she's going to pass the baton, so to speak, to Tim Schnicker, who's going to talk about some other type of stuff. And then when they're done, uh, musicians, we'll just go into the first hymn. Envelope fundraiser for the youth gathering. Uh, there's 16 of us going from this church to the youth gathering this summer down in Houston. Um, if you haven't talked to any of the youth that are going with us, pick them out today, ask them what they're looking forward to. But the way the fundraiser works is if you just grab an envelope, they've all got numbers on them, put the money in the, in the envelope, and then just put it in the offering plate, and we'll know that it goes directly to the youth gathering. Um, if you want to put more than what the number says, that's fine. If you can't quite put that much, maybe see if there's a friend or two that could help you put that much money in the envelope. Our goal is to get all the envelopes off the board within the next week or so. So if you could help us out with that, that would be great. Thanks. Good morning, St. James family. Um, I'm here on behalf of our fine property team, and I want to take this opportunity to personally invite everyone. If they have some free time on s Saturday morning, we'll be here from probably 8 till noon. Um, we have lots of little tasks to we need to take care of to this beautiful place that God has entrusted us. So please come out and, and serve if you have the opportunity. And I also want to thank the uh, Mel's fine group of high school students and, and Ruth were here 
earlier this week enduring the rainy, misty, cold area and raking up those wonderful gumballs out there. It was a good time. So I hope to see you Saturday. If you have any questions, just uh, reach out and ask me. Thank you. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, merciful Father, you keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. 
We confess that we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have not heeded your law, nor have we rejoiced in your gospel. We confess that things have fallen apart. But Lord, you keep covenant even when we do not. Your love is steadfast when ours is frail and fallible. You are faithful even when we are faithless. We want you to be our God, and we want to be your covenant people. Grant us the gift of faith. By your Holy Spirit, work in us steadfastness and singleness of heart, that we might manifest your love in the keeping of your commandments and the living of your gospel. O Lord, merciful Father, hear our prayers. In the name of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new and eternal covenant, to whom be glory forever and ever. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. One of our members recommended doing this. One of our members pointed out that a lot of times we have the confession and absolution, and then we just hustle straight on to the next part and ask that we would consider like stopping for a second and contemplating what does it mean that God loves us and that he's forgiven us. And so we're going to add this to our services from now on, this reflection on God's forgiveness. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The psalm is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. 
With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says this. Now, now remember, when, when Paul uses the word flesh, he doesn't mean physical world or physical body. When Paul uses the word flesh, he means that part of us that's still, that, 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 that part of us that comes from what Adam and Eve did, the part of our broken, fallen human nature that still longs for ourselves and still sees the world as primarily us-centered and not Christ-centered. Paul says, from, then, from now on, therefore, with, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, jumping down to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
be seated. So, uh, prodigal son, super famous story. It's a great story, and it's very, 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 very rightly a great story because it's just magnificent. It's one of the. It's it's what you want in a story. You know, it's what it's what you want in a good novel or in a movie. It draws you in and it forces you to pick sides. It develops the characters enough that you begin to identify with them. Uh, that's what good stories do. I was talking to uh, my, my daughter this week, and we've been listening to this podcast, and she was explaining, she was talking to me about how, like, you, you, you can listen to a story about, about a certain person, and you can side with them. And then if you listen to a story about, this, you know, it's the same story, but it's from the perspective of the people on the opposite side, if you hear the story from their perspective, you'll start to side with them. And this, of course, is what good stories do. It, it like pulls you in and makes you choose a side. And that's what story, this story does too. There's, you know, there's uh, three main characters here. There's the father, of course, and then there's the two sons. The main character, though, is, I, I mean, I know we call this the prodigal son. He's actually not the main character. The main character is God. Jesus starts off the story in verse 11 by saying there's a man who had two sons, and the man ends up being the main character throughout and so as we talk about it today, we're not going to focus so much on just this one son as on um, the father and what the father wants. What's the father looking for uh, as he tells this story? You know, Jesus is telling the story of the father and the father, like so many times in Jesus's story, is kind of the God character. It's not an allegory, so there's not direct one-to-one correspondence, but the father is, is the God character. What does God want in this story? Three things, and then um, we'll go to communion. So first of all, uh, God wants a relationship with us. I think this is probably the main thing that just jumps out of the story. Anybody, I mean, a lot of you who grew up in church, you kind of grew up with the story. But even if, if for those of you who are listening to it for the first time, this God, this father who wants this relationship with this person who's done a lot of damage to him is like the first thing that jumps, jumps out of the story to you, that God, God wants a relationship with us. Let's think about these two sons that he wants this relationship with. Of course, they're really different, right? One is, one's a progressive and one's a conservative. Uh, one's a rule breaker and one's a rule keeper. One's very much uh, live for the moment and one is live for the long haul. Uh, but in spite of the things that they don't have in common, they have uh, several things that are very, very much in common. And one of the main things they have in common here is that they both see the father as a means to an end for what they want. They both see the father as a way to get what they really want, which is property, theirs, what's coming to them. Of course, this is, you know, this is the main focus of the, for most readings of this story is the younger son in verse 12 who says to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And so he divides his property between them. I, so... Um, in the ancient, this guy's very much like farmers today. Farmers today, uh, so my wife's family uh, owns a large farm in Macoupin County. And it's, it's common to say of farmers, and it's true to say of them, that they're cash poor and property rich. They have these, you know, acres, thousands and thousands of acres, which are worth so much money. They have combines, which cost nowadays upwards of five hundred to $600,000. But they don't have a lot of cash. And this is true of this, this guy too. He, he's not got a lot of gold coins laying around if he's in the normal Jewish landowner. What he's got is property. He's got animals. He's got land. And so when the younger son comes to him and says to him, I want my share of the property, you know what he has to do is he has to sell off big chunks of the family property. 
This is extremely scandalous and shameful. Since the land isn't just like, it's not just a symbol of your sovereignty. It's not just, you know, it's not just your property. This is like inheritance. This is, this is a symbol of God's promise to you that the promised land will someday belong to you. And to sell off, probably according to the Levitical laws, probably sell off a third of this. The older son would be, um, he, he would by rights have two thirds coming to him to sell off a third of his property and a third of his animals to satisfy his son's quest for pleasure is definitely a shameful thing. And of course, the son, um, this, is a, this is almost a cliche. You guys, for those of you who grew up in church, you've heard this a gazillion times before. By saying to his father, I want my inheritance now, is in essence saying, I, I would, my life would be better if you were dead and I could have what's coming to me now. It's incredibly offensive to the father. In other words, father, your main job was to own this property and pass it on to me someday. That's what I need. That's what I need out of you, dad, is your property. That's what I need. The, 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 young, the older son is no different though, right? In verse 29, look down there at verse 29. Finds out that the younger son has a party and the older son says to his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Look, I, I, I've been working for you, but what did I get out of it? What have you ever done for me? Uh, again, not valuing the father for the relationship with his father, but valuing the father for what you do for me. I'm your son. I do things for you. You in turn, you're supposed to do things for me and you haven't. And now I'm offended. So I, I've, I, and I've said this twice in the past two months, I think, so I don't want to keep on beating this horse. But anything that you are desperate, anything that you say to God, God, if you get me that, I'll believe in you. Or God, if you get me that, I'll trust in you. That's really your God. And God is just a stepping stone to your real God. Anything that you say, God, I need you to do this for me. Anything that like, if doesn't happen and you're like, I don't know if I can believe in God. It's a demonstration to our own hearts that when we're like that, and we're all like that from time to time, it's a demonstration to our own hearts that what we were really worshiping is not God and Jesus Christ, but this thing that we wanted God to do for us. This property that we wanted, this, this party that we wanted him to throw for us. And that's where the two younger sons are. And so either way, but the, I mean, in the story, look at what happens in the story. Either way, either God, you know, you pray and you say, God, if you do this for me, I'll really believe in you. Let's say he does it. Let's say he doesn't do it. Either way, it's not good enough in the story. The, the younger son says, hey, do this for me. And the father does it. And he still bails on the father. He doesn't give the, the older son a party and the older son still bails on him. Either way, it's not good enough. This is one of the things about us is that the, the, the gods that we want to worship, the gods that we need, our God, the true God, I, mean, I should say the one true God as a stepping stone to these gods, those gods can never pay out. We'll never end up being satisfied by them. I, I told this story in here before too. This is, I, it's, it just cracks me up. The story of Jim Carrey, I, I know, and I think I told this in the, ch the chapel at high school, so, so pardon me. High schoolers this is the third time you're going to hear this story. Uh, Jim Carrey tells this story, but he prays when he's a kid and he prays and says, God, he, he goes to a Catholic school. A nun tells him, if you want something, you pray for it and God gives it to you. So he prays, I want a new bike. God, give me a bike. God gives him the bike. He comes home from school that day and there's a brand new bike sitting in his living room that he won in a raffle that he didn't even sign up for. A friend of his signed him up for it. God, give me a bike and I'll believe in you. Does Jim Carrey believe in Jesus? No, he doesn't. He says he doesn't at least. So what happened there? He says to God, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll believe in you. No, 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 you won't. 
God could do a million things for us and we wouldn't believe in him because God can never be a vending machine. You, if God is a vending machine, you're still not going to like that. You don't, nobody's heart is satisfied with vending machines. What we want is a relationship more on that in a second. What if God doesn't give you what you want though? That's another reason to not believe in him. So whether God gives us what we want in prayer or doesn't give us what we want in prayer, neither one of those scenarios is enough to move us to faith in God. I was, uh, I, I frequently do this just because it's good for, it's good for me to do this like finding arguments against God that people make, arguments against Christianity that people make, uh, you know, whatever, in books or online. And, and listening to those, to try to understand and try to sympathize and try to connect with where people are at. And I was doing that, uh, it was probably last week I was doing that. And um, I was, just, was, I can't remember, I was on this website and people were talking about, the website was actually about reasons not to believe in God. And there was this woman on there who gave her reasons to not believe in God. Her name was Tessa. And she said this, the bottom line for me is this. If God isn't prepared to answer prayers, if God isn't prepared to answer prayers in a very concrete way, i.e., hey God, I don't have a job or I don't have money to pay the rent, then she or he is useless to me. This is what Tessa says. I see absolutely no reason whatsoever to have a God in my life who's unwilling or incapable of answering emergency prayer. In any event, I must have prayed for something like 25 or 30 years. Not one single prayer was ever answered. So what is she saying? Well, what's Jim Carrey saying? Jim Carrey is saying, God, I'll believe in you if you do stuff for me. God does it. He doesn't believe in God. Tessa is saying, I pray to God to do these things for me. And she actually says out loud, and she or he is useless if they don't do those things for me. And they haven't happened. And so I'm not going to believe in God. This view of God is like this cosmic vending machine it doesn't lead anybody to faith. It doesn't satisfy the hearts of any of us. Why am I saying this? I, one reason why I'm saying this is this, is because like, don't struggle in your prayer life over, is God going to give me exactly what I'm praying for? This is not what this sermon is about, okay? So I'm not gonna try to unpack this here. But every time that you as a Christian pray to God, he answers your prayer, yes. Now the way that that will look might not look like the way you're asking for it. But whatever it is that your heart's desire is behind the request. So for instance, I'll just one quick example, then we'll move on because I don't want to waste too much time. If you pray like, God, I need money. You know, what you really want isn't money. What you really want is comfort or security, financial security, or you want the pleasure that money can give you. God, I promise you, God will answer that prayer. Yes. Now, he might not give you the money, but he will give you with himself comfort, security, pleasure. I know this sounds like pastor talk. I guess it is because I'm a pastor and I'm talking right now. But all those things, it sounds like pastor talk. All those things, when you receive those will be much better than the money that you prayed for. And when you receive them, you'll realize that what I was looking for was money. But what my heart was actually craving for was a relationship with God. What I was looking for was sex, but my, what my heart was actually craving was a relationship with God. What I was looking for was like job advancement or uh, good health, or somebody to save the life of a loved one. But what actually what I was craving for was the God who's prepared to give me all of those things in spades in himself. So what is enough? What is it that we really crave? Look at what the Father gives them. It's not about the property that they get or don't get that they crave. It's not about the property that want, they want to use God to get to. It's about God himself. Look what he says to the younger son. When the younger son comes home, I mean, this is just stunningly beautiful, Right? The younger son arises and comes to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father sees him, he feels compassion, he runs and embraces him and kisses him. 
Who cares about the property, right? I mean, God's like, I'll give you, you want a third of my property? I'll give it to you. What I actually want is to hold you and hug you and kiss you. That's what God wants with you. He doesn't want to be your cosmic vending machine. He wants to hold you in his arms. Same thing with the younger, I'm sorry, with the older son too. The older son is upset down there in verse 29. You didn't do this for me. When the son of yours came, verse 30, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Look what, look what the father says to the son. He said to him, son, you are always with me. Like he just wants the son to see this, like forget the parties, forget what, you, forget what your younger brother did. You and I are a thing. You and I are always together. This is what God wants. He wants a relationship with you. So I was talking to uh, Chuck and I were talking uh, this week again uh, on the podcast. We did an episode about prayer and it'll come out in a couple either this coming Wednesday or a couple Wednesdays. Wednesdays I don't remember, but we were talking about prayer as kind of a one way street and you know, you pray and you don't feel like you get anything back. But actually what prayer is fundamentally is this relationship with God. It's this give and take that we have with him. Like it, it starts with his word. Don't ever pray. I shouldn't say this. You can pray however you want. God will talk to you whenever. One of the best ways to prayer is like to start with the Bible and then move to prayer. Because what God actually wants is to hold you in his arms. He, he, He sees you from far off and he runs to you and he grabs you and he kisses your neck and he holds on to you. Because that's what he wants. More than this, though, is he wants the type of type of relationship that he wants is a father-child relationship. He doesn't just want a relationship, but he wants a father-child relationship. The, son, the, 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 the other thing that the brothers have in common, something else that the brothers have in common here, too, is that, I mean, so, so I, we just talked about how the brothers, they're using their father to get to something that's in their mind greater than their father. The second thing that they have in common is that the way that they relate to their father at these two are probably related as well, is not as sons, but as servants. They relate to their father as slaves. Now, the younger son, he just wants what his father's got, you know, and he goes and he blows it and he parties. But when he comes back, like we just read a few minutes ago in verse, um, let's see, oh, yeah, what was that? Verse 19, verse 20. Yeah, I'm sorry, verse uh, 19, verse 18. He, he, his plan is to come to his father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What's he doing? There's something going on in the son's mind where he's like, I've screwed this relationship up. I've blown my father's money. And the best way that I can remedy this is to be a servant. So you see, what my father would really want for me in this moment, what would really allow him to receive me back is if I do what he really wants, and that's to offer myself up as a slave, to be his servant. The older son does the same thing, of course. We just read this in verse uh, 29. Uh, His argument to his father about why his father's wrong and why he's right is, look, these many years I've served you. These many years I've been your slave. I've been your servant. And what do I gotten out of it? You see what they're both doing is they're both connecting with God as a slave. This is what this is notion that what God really wants is service. What what God really wants is to us to sacrifice our lives for him, to become his lackeys. That's what would make God really happy is to be his lackey. And the problem with my life in this scenario is that I don't serve God enough. I'm not a good enough slave. I haven't done enough work for him. I've not made him completely happy. And what I, what I can do to make it up is to go to him and look, okay, God, I've screwed this thing up. 
Just, just take me back as your slave. I'm going to do my best to serve you. And what the father refuses to do is to let the relationship happen on those grounds. He does not want slaves. He wants sons. He doesn't want servants. He wants daughters. He wants you to live in his house free and easy with the full and certain knowledge that you own the whole shebang. It all belongs to you. You blow the money. You come back home. He's just going to give you more. You've wasted your spending. You've wasted your status. He's going to come back and say, give him the ring. Give him the sandals. Give him the status of son I'm, I'm, I'm wanting back. When you come to him and you say, I've served you all these years, and what have you done for me? He's going to say to you, you and I are a thing. I'm always here. You're always here. We are always together. And everything that I have, he says down in verse 31, everything, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 31, and all that is mine is yours. You don't have to work for anything. Why have you been acting like you have to work to get all this stuff? Whatever you want, it's yours. It all belongs to you. In verses 22 through 24, he celebrates this free return of the son. In verses 31 and 32, he reorients the older son towards sonship and also towards brotherhood. This, your brother. That's a different sermon though. How this free and certain acceptance in Jesus Christ as sons and daughters means that we're all freely accepted in Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters as well. That's another sermon. We'll get to that another day. God wants a father-child relationship with us. He wants you to know that you're in and you can never be out. Paul says this really great in Galatians chapter 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, what, so that he could like raise us up as noble and pure-hearted soldiers of his. No, so that he could have loyal and faithful servants. No, so that we might, he says instead, receive adoption as sons and daughters. Jesus came so that God could have as many sons and daughters as he wants. He doesn't just want one son, Jesus. He wants daughters and sons. He wants to love you just as, and he does love you just as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Paul goes on, and because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is telling you right now that you aren't slaves, you aren't servants, that you're daughters and sons, so that you are no longer, Paul says in verse 7, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer an older brother. You're no longer a younger brother. Now you're just the son. You are a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's just saying the same thing Jesus said to the older brother. You're not a slave, you're a son, and if you're a son, that means you're an heir, and if you're an heir, that means everything I own is yours. The meek will inherit the earth is actually a literal thing. Every square inch of this universe belongs to Jesus, and that means it belongs to you. It's all yours. You want for nothing. Last thing, and they'll be done. And this is the main point of the story, actually. God wants a relationship. God wants a relationship with sons and daughters. The third thing is, God wants to make this child relationship with the outcast, with the worthless, with the people who shouldn't belong, the outsiders, the disenfranchised, the oppressed. That's who God wants. After all, this whole story is an answer to the question. Look back at verses 1 and 2 right at the beginning of the reading. The story flows out of this question. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man hangs out with sinful people. So the question, Jesus, why do you hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes? This story is an answer to that. This story is an answer. And this is actually the main reason. Okay, so what's he doing here? Now, can you pay attention? Give me uh, three minutes. Just pay super close attention to me here because what I'm about to say is 
not on the surface of the story to 21st century American readers, especially for a lot of you who've heard this story read and said so many times, but it's actually, it would have been on the forefront of the minds of Jesus's original hearers. So I'm going to try and drag us back 2,000 years and listen to this story the way that Jesus's original audience would have heard this story, okay? So the question is, Jesus, why do you hang out with the tax collectors and prostitutes? Why do you hang out with the bad people? And Jesus tells this story, and to everybody who heard this story, the echoes would have been unmistakable. Listen, Jesus tells a story about a young man who rebels against his father, his good father, and goes off into a distant country where he is thoroughly paganized. He loses all aspects of his faith and who he is. Like he's eating with pigs, which for the Jew, like you're not even supposed to eat pigs, let alone eat with pigs, right? I mean, this is like the, the, this is the, the apex of paganization. But he turns around and he comes back home to receive this full welcome back home. Do, do, if, maybe, maybe you don't, but if you were one of Jesus' hearers, you would have known what this story was immediately. It was the story of the return from exile. The story of Israel, which God planted in the land and said, I'm your father, you're my son, you belong here, who rebels and rebels against God and goes out into a distant country, Assyria, Babylon, and is thoroughly paganized. And God says, I'm going to welcome you back home with open arms. You're dirty, you're filthy, but I'm going to cleanse their sins and make them whiter than snow and welcome you back home. It's a constant theme in the Old Testament. I know this is not like on the surface for 21st century listeners. So let me give you some Old Testament text. Let me proof text you. Give me two minutes to do this. Deuteronomy 30. Moses is saying at some point you're going to disobey God and you're going to be put off into exile, but God will welcome you back. Moses says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've said before you, and you call them to mind. Remember that the, the, the younger son comes to himself in this pagan country. You call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord, your God has driven you and return to the Lord, your God, you and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And I will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. This is the story of the Old Testament. Into exile at some point, God's going to act to bring you back home out of exile, back to the promised land. Nehemiah refers to this in basically echoing Deuteronomy 30. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, God says, and do them, though you're outcast, you're in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. One more, and this is rich. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the Messiah coming. In that day, the root of Jesse, this is, this is the Messiah, right? The root of Jesse is kind of Isaiah, one of Isaiah's code words for Jesus. When the Messiah comes, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. In other words, it's like this huge banner so that all the peoples and all over the world know where to go. He's a signal to, to head that direction. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, when the Messiah shows up, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time the first is in uh, when he takes the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. The second time is when he do, does this new exodus, this new return from exile. And the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, 
and from the coastlands of the sea, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So here's this Old Testament story that's being told of you've rebelled Israel, you've been sent off into the pagan countries. But when the Messiah shows back up, he's going to welcome you back home. As dirty as you are, as rebellious as you are, as paganized as you are, he's going to welcome you back home with free and open arms. Now, go back to the parable of the prodigal son. Here's what's happening. The moral majority says to Jesus, why are you hanging out with all the nasty people? And Jesus tells this story about the end of exile. And do you see what he's saying now? He's saying, I'm here. The exile is now over. Now it's time to welcome the prostitutes back into the fold. Now it's time to welcome the outcast and the sinners and the pagans back into my party. The question for them, the question for the Pharisees, the moral majority, the question for you and I today is not why does Jesus hang out with sinful people, but why aren't we hanging out with sinful people? If Jesus has come and the new age has started, if new creation is here, which we just read in 2 Corinthians 5, then why is it that we were more comfortable being a collection of older brothers. Christianity's job is to make us respectable, to make us better servants. Instead, why isn't this a free gathering, a free welcome to the nastiest of the nasty, the brokenest of the broken, the, the most hopeless of the hopeless, the, the, the most despairing of the despairing, the, the wickedest of the wicked, this St. James, I'm talking about not just in general, St. James Lutheran Church should be a place where prostitutes feel welcomed, where people who are incredibly broken, where the traitors feel welcomed, where the questioners feel welcomed. Why? Because we're cool and relevant? I, well, I, I am. I don't know about you guys, but it's probably not the main reason. The main reason is because since Jesus has come and initiated new creation, it's now time for all the outsiders to come into the party. Jesus loves telling stories about this. None of the fancy people come. Go out into the highways and byways and get all the poor people to come in. That's what St. James, this is what he's doing. Jesus wants sons and daughters relationships with the older sons and with the younger sons. And part of the story is to remind us too that fundamentally they're not different. Fundamentally, they both see God as a stepping stone to other things. Fundamentally, they both see themselves as potential slaves. The, older, the, the, the younger son, you, you know, the, the, the progressive who thinks about the possibility of being a slave to God, you know, drives them to despair and emptiness. The older son, you know, the, the conservative who thinks about being a slave to, slave to God, it drives them to anger and bitterness. But they're really both in the same boat. And all of them are completely welcome. That's what God wants for you. So what Jesus has come to do is to make St. James Lutheran Church and every other Christian church a free and open welcome in the name of Jesus. Now, older brother questions are popping into your minds. Well, don't, don't they need to clean up their lives? Like, shouldn't they? Like, you can't just let anybody come to St. James, right? I mean, people kind of need to like, don't they need to repent? Don't they need, and for Jesus, yes, Go and sin no more is a very Jesus thing to say. But that doesn't happen until after the party. You come to Jesus first, and then you address those questions. So what is repentance in the story? Is repentance giving up your bad deeds? No, that's just another form of trying to be a bigger slave. What is repentance in the story? I'm going to give you, don't do this in a sermon usually, 10 seconds to think about. What does repentance look like in this story? I'll tell you the way it looks. Are you going to come into the party or are you not going to come into the party? The younger son's home. I'm throwing a massive party for him. 
Repentance would just be like, okay, I'm in. I'll come to the party. It's nothing more than that. It's nothing less than that. Are you going to align with Jesus? Once we do, honestly, are any of us better than prostitutes? A lot of us have sexual sin in our mind, stuff that you've, sins that you've committed in your, in your past, which you would be absolutely ashamed to say out loud. And we've turned church into a place where we kind of hide all that and act like we're not really those people. But honestly, we're all younger sons. We've all stolen money. We've all lied before. Like if you were required right now to turn to your best friend or to your spouse and say to them everything that you honestly think about them and everything that you've done, said to hurt them in the past, you would just say, well, just kill me. I can't do that. I would just rather die right here. We're all younger sons and we've all been freely welcomed here. Now, how can, the, how can the father do this? So one of my favorite parts of the story is this, because this story doesn't have Jesus's crucifixion in it, right? He doesn't really reference it. But what he does reference is this, is the father's unlimited wallet. The father's bottomless checking account. You steal a third of his money, you come back home, he'll just give it back to you. He's earned that. He owns everything. He freely gives of himself to supply our needs no matter what. Jesus, of course, is the apex of this. Jesus is willing, in order for us to live, Jesus is willing to give up his own life. Jesus comes here to die the death. This is why, uh, so a book recommendation real quick. Tim Keller has written this fantastic little book about this text called The Prodigal God, which is, this is the best name for this story. What does prodigal mean? Prodigal doesn't mean like somebody who wanders away. Prodigal means like wasting. A prodigal is somebody who wastes. It's, who's doing the most wasting? It's actually the father. The father wastes his property on these kids out of love because he wants to. Our God is the prodigal God. Jesus has wasted his own blood to rescue us from our sin. Jesus has wasted his own life so that we could live forever. Jesus constantly wastes. Like we, we, we cheat on him all the time and he constantly comes back and welcomes us with, with open arms. He's constantly spending himself over and over. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ does for us. It's, it's created this infinite world where infinitely you can be sons and daughters forever and ever. Let's pray and let's come to the rail and experience what it means to be sons and daughters forever and ever. Please stand with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for Father, you know how often we stray from you. You know how often we view you as a taskmaster. You know how often we try to use you as a stepping stool to other things we value more than you. And yet, Father, we acknowledge here this morning, all of us acknowledge and praise you for being the God who constantly is looking down the road for us, is constantly chasing us down to throw your arms around us. Father, help us not to live in the things that we want or the things that we think that we need. Help us not to live in the made-up statuses in our mind of our own servanthood but help us to live comfortably in the embrace of you, our Father. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you'd be with all of us in here this morning who are struggling with all different kinds of brokennesses and griefs. For people who are mourning their own mortality, who are afraid of death, who are facing sicknesses which might be terminal. For people who have broken relationships which they long to be healed or maybe even at this point are over. For people who have financial problems which... Uh, just feel inescapable to them, feel like a huge weight hanging over their heads. 
for all of these people, Father? Would you bring hope and peace and mercy? Would you answer all of our prayer requests? Would you meet all of our needs, whatever they are? Our health needs, our relationship needs, our financial needs, our uh, meet the needs that arise just naturally out of our aims and our goals and our desires. And Father, however you want to answer those, God, help us to love and seek you most of all. I pray especially this morning for a couple of special uh, requests. First of all, Father, I pray that you would uh, give hope and uh, comfort to the family of Lucille Early who's passed away and that you would help all of them to rest easy in the knowledge that since your son Jesus has risen from the dead, that Lucille and all of us will rise from the dead too someday. I also want to give you thanks and praise for the birth of Gabriel Moldenhauer to Dave and Jamie this week. And I just pray that you would uh, continue to give mother and son uh, great health. Uh, Bring him quickly uh, to us. Bring him quickly to the waters of baptism. Uh, May Gabe never, ever know a day, Father, where he's not completely aware and experiencing your love for him. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray all these things because whether we're the progressive child or whether we're the uh, um, conservative child, whether we're the rebellious child or whether we're the slave child, regardless, you have made us your children. And we come into your throne room freely and boldly because in your son, Jesus Christ, you've made us your daughters and sons. And so we always pray these prayers in his name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Grant us your spirit, gracious Father, that we may give heed to the covenant of your Son in true faith. And above all, firmly take to heart the words with which Christ gives to us his body and blood for our forgiveness, life, and salvation. By your grace, lead us to remember and give thanks for the boundless love which he manifested to us when by pouring out his precious blood, he saved us from your righteous wrath and from sin, death, and hell. Grant that we may receive the bread and wine, that is his body and blood, as a gift, guarantee, and pledge of his salvation. Graciously receive our prayers Deliver and preserve us. To you alone, O Father, be all glory, honor, and worship with the Son and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Thanks be to God. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Adult Bible study and Sunday school right after this downstairs. Look around, find somebody you haven't connected with lately and work on that relationship. Go in peace.